Welcome to the Writers Talking Feature Film, brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada. I'm Michael McGowan. This is the first Writers Talking Feature Film evening presented by the Guild, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to host the event. I'll be speaking with Alain Mustai, writer of The F Word in Canada and What If in America, one of the most talked about Canadian feature films this year. As a feature writer myself, I know the challenges of writing for the big screen, and some of my conversation with Alain will focus on those challenges. But we'll also talk about the joys, about the craft that anyone interested in writing movies would be curious about. Enjoy the podcast, and make sure to keep an eye on the Writers Guild of Canada website or on iTunes for more. Yeah, great movie, huh? Congratulations. So, Thank uh, you. Yeah, that was uh, lots of fun. So, here we are. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, so, I'd like to start with the first question. Can you tell me about the origins of this and the evolutions? I mean, I've read it's Fox Searchlight had it at one point where it was, you know, obviously based on a play. You're an executive producer. How'd you manage that? So, just sort of take me through the history of this project. Sure. Um, yeah, it started as a play. Uh, it was like a one-act fringe festival play by uh, T.J. Daw and Michael Rinaldi called Toothpaste and Cigars. And uh, uh, a producer friend of mine, Mark Stevenson, who's a, a producer on the picture, he, uh, we went to go see it at a little bar on Granville Street in Vancouver. And so when was this? What year was this? Like 2004. Holy shit. Yeah, I think the, pl- the play is 2003. We saw it in 2004. Um, and so, just sort of, uh, was there much buzz about it, or was it just that were you guys like, like I, was there some hype with it in a French festival play, or did you guys just? I mean, I think that it had done well on the festival, on the French festival circuit. Um, but I, uh, I think Mark, like a friend of his, took him to see it, and he just saw, he felt like there was something in there. And then he also felt like the voice of the playwrights and my voice as a writer would kind of like sync up well. Um, and we had done a short film together, uh, this little short called Chemistry that was directed by a guy named Cam Labine, and we had a good uh, experience on that. Sure. And, um, and so we went, uh, so I went to see it. And yeah, we, you know, I just, at, the, at that time, in terms of my writing career, I, I had been writing a lot of stuff for other people. Uh, I'd been working with directors and kind of helping them execute um, their ideas or producers helping them execute their ideas. But I hadn't really sat down and written like, like a feature that was really my voice, my point of view, discussing the kind of things that were going on in my own life and that I was kind of the themes that I was interested in exploring. And when I saw the play, it, it's a very, um, uh, it's, it's really funny and really charming. It has great characters, but it's also very limited. It's, it's basically a two-hander. So the play is just Wallace and Chantry's characters. There's no, and most of it takes place essentially like around the table and, and how long would the play have been? Like, 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 a, like a 30 minutes? Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like a one-act play. Um, and so it, it, it felt like it was very rich, but it also felt, uh, as, a, as an adaptation, it was an opportunity for me to kind of, um, kind of fill out the world, fill out the characters, and kind of run with it, while still kind of honoring and respecting the source material which had inspired it. And, and were you ever intending to write with them, or was it always going to be you were going to take it and do it yourself? Like, was there any, any talk? Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, I mean, it was, you know, I, the playwrights are, are playwrights, and they're very good at it. Uh, T.J. Daw, in particular, is very well known for his monologue writing. Yep. Um, he does a lot of dramatic monologues and has continued to do really well in the festival circuit. Um, 
but yeah, no, I kind of knew where I wanted to go with it. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, initially when I started adapting it, I, I just something in the material spoke to me and also the things that I was going through in my own life. Uh, and I felt like my sense of humor and the sense of humor of the play would sync up nicely. When I first started adapting it, I, uh, I was kind of going for a more faithful adaptation. Uh, but and, and sorry, just and were you, like, was it through telefilm? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you guys applied to the... Yeah, Mark got some money from Telefilm yeah. uh, and a couple other of the look, you know, the funding agencies. This is like 2005, uh, and we, I started adapting it. Um, and then at a certain point, I think you know, I had been in a lot of these kind of experiences, sure. being uh, you know, falling for somebody that's with somebody else and kind of pining for them and kind of convincing myself that uh, it's better to be friends uh, than nothing at all because I like them and I want to spend time <laughs> with them. And then, Do you want to name names or are we just going to go? Sure. Maybe some of them are here. Uh, is there, uh, uh, yeah, although I have been to screenings where uh, people uh, who I've been in this situation uh, in the past have been like, this seemed very familiar. Yes, it does seem familiar, doesn't it? So it's sweet revenge for you. It's yeah. Nice. It's really, they never, so far, none of them have come with their lawyers. That's a good. Um, that's good. Uh, but at a certain point, I, you know, I ended up in a serious relationship, and and that was really actually when I think that things changed in terms of the writing process because then I suddenly saw the other point of view. So sorry, what what year was this? So we started in two thousand and four. Yeah. This what? Uh, it's like two thousand and seven. So a couple of dry years, and then you're thinking yeah. Well, that, you know, and the draft was kind of like I was kind of figuring out the draft. And also, I mean, I hadn't, I'd done some shorts, but I hadn't really written anything that was like my voice as a writer. In fact, at that point in my life, I'd sort of thought that I needed to just write in a very neutral voice because I was usually work, been hired by people to execute something. So I kind of, I, I wrote in, in as neutral a way as possible. And so this was the first project where I really um, embraced my own kind of idiosyncratic way of, of, of writing and seeing the world and try to put that on the page, which took a little while to figure out. And then I think for me, you know, the play is very, very much from Wallace's point of view. Chantry in the play is kind of inscrutable. You know, he, he doesn't really understand what she wants from him, and he's kind of trying to figure her out. And, and as I got into the other side of things, which is in a relationship, suddenly I was like, okay, now I see the other point of view, which is when you're in a relationship and you meet somebody and they're interesting and you like hanging out with them, but it doesn't mean you want to break up with your, with your partner. What do you do with that attraction, is it even, attraction? Is, is attraction the right word for it? Where does liking somebody as a friend and liking them as something more, where is that, that line? Boundary, it can get a little yeah. messy. And that's when I started to understand the care, and that's when I realized that it needed to be a 50-50 story. It needed to be as much from Wallace's point of view as from Chantry's point of view. And that's when the script really kind of like came to life. And, and so had you written like a few drafts? Yeah, I'd written a couple of drafts. Outline, obviously. Yeah. Okay, so you're, you've written a couple of drafts and then you sort of found your, and were you working with the story editor at this point? Were you just sort no, of, I was just working Mark, with Mark was just sort of giving you feedback. Was yeah, it, were the playwrights out of it at this point, or were they? Were you sort of get, like, what do you guys think? Not not as approval, but were they? No, I mean, I think they had uh, optioned the material to us, and it was you know they were obviously you know wanted it to go well, but they sort of let us kind of run right. with it. Um, but they hadn't really been through the experience of having one of their works adapted either. So. Um, yeah, and so and then the, the script really kind of came to life, and then things started happening pretty quickly for it. Suddenly, like I, I ended up with a draft that was much more split between the points of view, and uh, I sort of also at the same time um, figured out like I, it kind of came to life in terms of like my voice and my comic voice, and 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 the themes all kind of crystallized, and the characters all crystallized, not just the leads but the supporting cast. It all kind of it was like that third draft in late two thousand and seven, and then that draft um, ended up 
starting to get heat in the U.S. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was on the blacklist. It's on the blacklist, yeah. And so, so were you guys going out, like, through your agent? Was Mark shopping it around? Like, what was the process for, you know, everybody oh, wants to well, get home run in L.A.? Uh, we, we were going to, we wanted, originally our plan was just to make it as, like, a really low-budget Canadian film, like, try to get, like, a million bucks together and just make it here. And you guys are still in Vancouver at this point? Were you? Uh, Mark was in Vancouver. I had moved to Toronto. Okay. Um and so I was living here. I still call it Toronto. Uh, so you can tell that I, I'm from Vancouver originally. Um, somebody saw the movie and they're like, I, you know, they love that it was like a love letter to Toronto and you really embraced the city and you shot it with such, uh, such romance and verve. But Zoe keeps calling it Toronto. And I was like, well, maybe she moved here. <laughs> Backstory, yeah. Um, yeah, so, we, so um, actually, we uh, tried to finance it. Uh, Telefilm passed on the project. Bastards. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, they've, they've been good to me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> I know they, they came, they came they, back they, later. They, but uh, at the time, they passed on the project. Uh, they didn't feel it was commercial enough. Um, and, uh, but Mark, to his credit, was like, well, we're going to try to attach some talent and go back. So, so he was, okay. Yeah. So, like, he didn't give, you know, just, I mean, he didn't give up just because we got a no. He's like, we're going to try to package yeah. it. And, um, and were you rewriting it at this point? Or were you no, just... we were pretty happy with the script. I right. mean, even though it had been passed on, we felt confident. We felt like yeah, yeah. it was good material. And so he, hired, he just went out of pocket and hired a casting director in the U.S. to try to get it out. And just, like, we didn't know anybody. Sure. I mean, we had I mean, no I... contacts down there. And so... And uh, you could get people to read it without an offer? Well, we, we, <laughs> we didn't really know what we were doing. And so uh, we started sending it around to, uh, to agencies and management companies through this casting director that we hired. And, um, and we didn't really... What, what, what sort of happened was it wasn't like we, we got some really great feedback. People started like, giving us really positive reactions. We didn't get any like, movie star signing on to the project. But what did happen is people started paying attention to the script and passing it around and um, started getting all this kind of buzz. And not really knowing much about how L.A. works, like, I didn't realize that there's this entire like, black market of like, scripts. Yeah, where, they're tracked. Yeah, and all the assistants and the development executives and the junior agents, they all pass scripts around constantly. And this has kind of become formalized in this thing, the blacklist. Does, does everybody know what the blacklist is, the sort of annual... Oh, so the blacklist is it's this annual uh, list of sort of the best unproduced screenplays of the year, you know, like... Thousands of scripts kind of circulate through Hollywood every year, and, and um, you know, development executives and studio executives are always looking for good things to read. And so, at the end of the year, this, this guy by the name of Franklin Leonard, who at the time I believe was um, at uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's company, Appian Way, he just started like circulating this like informal list of like the best, the, the sort of fifty best scripts um, that he heard about this year, that, and then he would ask his friends to just suggest stuff to him. And then that became formalized and there became like a formalized voting process and then it started to become like a thing. Um, and, and, two, and so in 2008, uh, the F word was on the blacklist and that opened a lot of doors for me in the U.S. All and, of a and sudden. And at this point, are you thinking it's going to get produced? Like, because like, like, I mean, like as I said, mm -hmm. I read Fox Searchlight had it. Yeah, at that time. And then one of the things that came out of that, I got an agent, I got a manager, I started getting, uh, you know, interest from the studios. I started getting me a lot of meetings down there. And Fox Searchlight, uh, to, like acquired the project. They got a, they had just uh, finished Five Hundred Days of Summer, hadn't come out yet, right. but they were really excited about making this kind of you know um, 
character-driven, you know, youth-skewing kind of romantic comedies with a certain kind of style and verve. And so when Fox Searchlight had it, how, how were you guys involved? Like, were you, like, as produce? I mean, writer? Yeah, I mean, producer? I was still the only writer on it. We developed it at Searchlight for a couple years. We um, So how is that? I mean, cause that seems like now you're sort of six years, seven years into this thing. Are you losing your mind at this point? No, I mean... Because I know I would be. Like, um, I, I'm... Like script, no. no, like and like. What do you mean developing it for a couple of years? Well, like, we. What does well, that mean? so we. No, so no, I'm, I'm not trying to be obtuse. I just sort no, of. Like, what does feel that free mean? to be obtuse. It's fine. I do it all the time. Um, uh, no, I mean you know they were interested in making it, but they wanted to kind of like hone the script, and so uh, they hooked us up with these producers that they knew and were comfortable with, and had made a couple of movies with uh, this company called Mr. Mud, which is Russ Smith, Leanne Halfin, and, and John Malkovich. So they had produced uh, Ghost World and Juno, which had been very successful for them. And they did something that, so this was my first kind of really world, real project working down in LA, and, and Russ and Leanne did something that I just thought maybe this is like the way things are done down there, which is I, I was flown down there, and we spent a week sitting at a table in the farmer's market in, in, in like at the Grove in L.A., and we went through every single line of the script, like line by line. Um, and we just went through it for like five days, just talking through everything in intense detail. And it wasn't so much that they were like giving me notes. They were more just asking questions. Yeah. Why this? Why this? Why did you do it this way? What are you trying to say here? Well, you know, why... You know, where are you in terms of tracking the character? What, what, you know, how do you feel like the theme is kind of playing out in this scene? All of that sort of stuff. And sometimes my answers were like, I just thought that was funny. Um, They actually said to me, you know, no writer has ever admitted that to us. (laughs) They always come up with a really big excuse. I'm like, well, I just thought it was was just funny. Um, But that was great. So it was very, very intensive. and through that, and then I did a rewrite on the project, you know, uh, with their notes and with input from Searchlight, who are like really smart people. They're like, you know, very, sure. they have a very good development team. They make really good movies. And the script got, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't that it changed that much. It just got more focused and it got tighter. Um, and the characters got crisper and the jokes got better. And we almost made it at Searchlight. And then for various reasons, it kind of it didn't happen. And then we were in uh, sort of, you know, development limbo. Sure. So, so it doesn't get. Have you been paid okay for this? Have you been yeah, paid I mean, well? I was getting paid. You know, like I mean, Fox is a fairly uh, large corporation. Out of one out of ten, ten being great, one being not. So were you in sort of like, <laughs> like a six? Six. Uh, okay, six. Yeah, I mean, okay. um, and then, and so then the movie almost got made, and then it didn't happen for various various reasons. It didn't really have anything to do with the script, but had a lot to do with like the president of Searchlight was promoted to another job. There's new president. The company was changing direction. The executive that had. You know, spearheaded the project, had found it, left to another company, and a new person came in who was great, but had other priorities and all that kind of stuff. He wasn't great, at, or he or she weren't great at the passenger project. Seriously. Well, I know actually they were good. They were pretty good, but no, I mean, but that's the reality is like that, that companies change direction, and then all of a sudden, the kind of movies that they had been making, um, the Junos and the Little Miss Sunshines and the Five Hundred Days of Summers, suddenly they weren't making those movies anymore. They wanted to be the place where auteurs come to make their dream project. You know, they want to be the place where Danny Boyle and Darren Aronofsky bring their projects, and that wasn't this thing. Um, and, uh, and so, now, but at the time, like, even though that was frustrating, the, the script also became a calling card. And so uh, I set up a pitch at Paramount. I got hired to write a movie for Warner Brothers. I sold another project at Paramount. I got hired to write a movie for Sony and all this sort of stuff. And all of these things were happening based on the F word as a sample. And at a certain point you go, okay, well maybe this movie is never going to get made, but sure. it's also, you know, it's sort of, it sort of paid for itself in opening yeah, doors. Yeah. 
Um, and then uh, after about a year and a half, or like we kept hearing maybe we're gonna go back and make, like Searchlight kept saying we still want to make the movie, just not yet. So they kept the option, and that kept going for about every six months that we'd have that conversation, and then they'd re up. And then I got, and then one day I got a call from um, uh, Michael Douse and his producing partners, Dave Gross and Jesse Shapiro and Jeff Arcus, who they just finished Goon, and it had been a very good experience. And Mike was looking for his next project, and he had read the script, and he fell in love with it. And he wanted it to be his next movie. He really wanted to kind of he wanted to do something very different than Goon. That was still really funny, but, but you know had more emotional. Sure. Depth. Yeah. And so, how did Mike get the script? Like, did it was it? Uh, we actually uh, he ended up uh, signing to the same manager that I had. Okay. And so we suddenly shared a manager, and my manager and our mutual manager uh, was just like. He didn't give him the script like, oh, you should direct this movie. He's like, oh, I, I have another Canadian client. Right. You're Canadian. You probably know each other. Uh, we didn't. We'd never met before. But um, uh, he said, like, but, you know, you should take a look at, at the script. And, you know, maybe you and Elan want to find something to do together. And he's like, well, what about this? And they approached me. And I, and I said, look, I mean, you know, I was a huge fan of Mike's work already. I would sure, have been yeah. delighted. Um, and, I, you know, and they talked, you know, Mike and I had a like, very long, in-depth conversation about what he loved about the script, how he would direct it, I, everything he was saying uh, was really exciting to me, uh, you know, and I, I thought he, I knew that, you know, I, I knew that with this kind of movie, like, it can get pretty twee pretty quickly. Sure. And Mike is not a twee dude. I don't know no. if you've ever met him. Yeah, no, I know Mike. He's, yeah, yeah, he's not, he's, he's, very, he's the opposite of twee. Um, and then I knew it'd be really funny, and I knew it would have a lot of heart, and, and I, you know, but I also knew that the rights were tied up with the 20th century Fox giant multinational corporation, which is not easy. And I figured, and I told the producers, if you guys can figure out a way to get the rights out of Fox, then I'm sure you can finance the movie because that's going to be the hardest part. Sure. And it took about a year, but they did it. And, and then so, we. So when did, when did Mike approach you then for this? Uh, this was like. Uh, I want to say this is like spring 2011. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then fairly quick after that. Then. And then, well, it took about a year to get the rights, right. and then it happened fast. Telefilm came in. We we reworked it as a Canada Ireland co-production. We got yeah. money from you know we got uh, so we put the money together pretty quickly. Mike wrote a letter to Daniel Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, and so that's just as simple as that. I like. I mean, well, I mean, what happened was Dear the Daniel. Yeah, well, no, I mean, look, they're at the same agency in the U.S., right. and Mike heard through the grapevine that Daniel was looking... We were, you know, talking about who... There's, there's not that many, like, 24, 25-year-old actors that can, like... that All your financiers will be like, great. Like, most of those people in that age group, unless they have, like, a, a massive franchise behind them, um, the financiers and your international salespeople are going to be like, ah, oh, we're not really sure... Um, but if you know, but then a lot of the people that come out of these like teen franchises don't have the acting chops, or they're not funny, you know. Right. But um, we knew that you know we heard through the grapevine that Daniel was really interested in doing a comedy, uh, like through the agency, and so that was kind of like the agency doing its job, and 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 he, they got him the script, and Mike wrote him a letter, and Daniel like we, it was like a three week like we like he, we sent him the script with the letter, and then like a par- Daniel says he decided on page two of the script that he was going to do it, and Mike. Flew to London to meet him, and we had a bunch of conversations. And within three weeks, he was signed up to do the movie, and then we got to make the movie. Sure. And were you involved in the conversations with Daniel as well? Yeah, I was involved every step of the way. Michael was in, like an incredible, uh, like a really generous collaborator, a real partner every step of the way through this whole process. I was on set every day. Uh, I was part of the casting conversations. I was at the monitors with Mike. Uh, you know, I mean, I was involved in post. And I mean, that was—it's not always typical of the of for a writer, but you know, we had a great we had a great relationship. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you seem to be involved in every step. And so how, if you can cast your mind back to 2003 to where it, where <laughs> it is uh, now, 
it, how does it compare? Or can you even is that even a fair question? Like, do you do you look at sort of because you're involved in every step of the way, you yeah. probably lost that that perspective, that distance. Unlike some writers, here's my script, and then right. you open the premiere. Yeah. Did you did you find yourself wanting to direct it and say, eh? or did you find did you just sort of because you're so involved in every step of the way that you sort of lost that that distance of seeing it for the first time as a writer? I mean, yeah, I think that I think writers often get frustrated in the finished film when they feel like they have no power or voice or say in the process, when decisions are made or changes are made and they're not part of them. And that can be incredibly frustrating. But if you're working with a producing team and a director that are inclusive and that want that, it's not just they're being nice, like you are a, a partner sure. in the process, any changes, like if there, if there were changes that were made, I was part of that decision. If there was, uh, so I was part of that process. And so I don't feel like the movie doesn't reflect, I yeah. mean, to me, you know, the movie is exactly the script that I wrote. I mean, there obviously are some changes because you make the movie in the real world. But, I mean, because I was able to be part of that and my voice was, was part of the process, I, I, feel it's, I feel it's as much my movie as anyone else's. Yeah, I mean, they say they make you do a movie three times when you write it, when you shoot it, when you edit it. Yeah. And so, on set every day, what was your role? Like, in terms of, like, on a day-to-day... -day Craft set? services is, like, amazing. <laughs> and uh, my Talk job was to eat everything. Um... It depended on the day. I mean, you know, sometimes you're there. Um, no, I guess I'm asking. Did did does Mike work in a way that things are going to improv and change? I mean, you you, you worked on the script for ten years. Yeah, 10 the script years. was pretty honed, and I mean, Mike and I did some work on it. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, he had notes, and we had like a development process when he signed on. Although it was pretty abbreviated because we went into production pretty quickly, um, but we wanted to capture the feeling of just that you're that you're watching a bunch of conversations that just happened on set. You're just watching two friends riffing. We wanted it to feel improvised. It's actually much more scripted than it feels. Sure. Um, but Mike uses improv in a very targeted way. Not even necessarily to I mean we we would like we were constantly like part of what we did was Mike and I would stand behind the camera just like yelling jokes out at the actors and just like and like whenever he'd yell cut and we'd have change of setup, I would just the part of my job was like we just like riff, like come up with ideas and throw stuff out and like and just like you know just kind of capture that just keep throwing ideas out and, and keep throwing jokes out and strange random tangents and just like getting everybody just talk, talking. And most of that stuff we don't even use. But what it does is it creates an atmosphere where everything feels like it's happening in the moment, where the actors have to listen, really listen to each other. They're not just preparing for their next line. They have to pay attention. They don't know what's going to happen next. And it's just a positive, like everybody's like laughing and like your mind is sparking. And that's what you want. So Mike did a really good job as a director of creating an improvisational kind of high energy atmosphere, even if the actual jokes that you're seeing are mostly scripted. And what was Jan Daniel Radcliffe like? I mean, the bad parts. Just he's a monster. Yeah, uh, no, he's you know he's a great he's a great dude. He's a really uh, incredibly hardworking, uh, super grounded, like like amazingly grounded considering the life he's had. Person and just really committed to acting. You know, he just wants to be the best actor he can be. He wants to challenge himself and push himself, which is a, which is great. And we joke that I mean, he literally has more experience on set than the entire crew combined. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, so the movie's made around seven million worldwide, three and a half in the states, and, and, have, and great reviews and you know, all that. Have you sort of, as your, are you hot right now? Have your opportunities increased? Are you in a, in a phase? You know, because you read, you're doing a project with Alan Ball, you're doing a project with Ira Glass. You know, this, the project that you mentioned. You know, is, are you finding right now because of this that, that things are on the upswing? That you're, or you know, where are you at? What, what yeah, you no, of course. I mean, look. You, as a writer, the, the sort of primal 
wound that a lot of writers carry with them is they never get to see their work actually executed the way they imagined it. You know, and I mean, this is not my first. This is my fifth feature, yeah, no. and uh, it's the first one that really feels like it has my voice, my point of view, my personality. That it feels mo like mine. I mean, obviously, I share it with the people I collaborated with, but but it's my it's my yeah, voice sure. and. That does that is a game changer for you uh, as a writer because not only do you have like a good script, but you have a, a good movie, like a good movie that actually turned out that that is uh, that is your script brought to life. And so, and it means you, it's something you can show people, and it's not just on the page, but it's it's come to life with great actors and 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 you know like a high end crew and all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, it is a game changer because suddenly you can show people what you're talking about, and it, and it makes it more concrete. And so you, I mean, you strike me as a person that knows the business side of it as well as the writing side of it. Uh, a bit of the craft of, as you as a writer, how do you write? Like, do you write nine to five? Like, what's your process? Um, yeah, I'm pretty disciplined. Uh, you know, I, I'm usually at my desk by like 9.30 or 10, and I write until 1, and I take a lunch break, and I'm back on my desk at 1.30 or 2, and I write till 5 or 5.30. I you make me feel bad. Yeah, well, that was my goal, was to make you feel bad. Um, I mean, it's not like I never procrastinate, but I try to keep it, I try to treat it like a day job, because it is my day job, you yep. know, and I, and I, you know, I follow that principle of, like, you show up every day, unless you're, like, so sick you can't get out of bed, and you do it rain or shine, and you, I don't, I don't fuss it up a lot, you know, um, I just try to, like, because I, I found for me personally, um, you know, Inspiration happens when I'm at my desk writing. It's like I don't sure. start the day inspired. It just uh, the more I write, the more it flows. And so I I, kn I would rather just sit there writing really bad material for as long as it takes for something good to surprise me. You know. And are you always like balancing multiple projects, or are you sort of work like sort of do you work on? One thing in the morning, something in the afternoon, or you just want. Like, I mean, you have a limited number of amount of like mental real estate, and I think it's. You talking it, to me right now? No, yeah, oh, sorry, you. Sorry, no, 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 you I, I, have I, I, a very was, limited amount of mental real estate. I, I just noticed the questions that are pretty good. They right away, that yeah. bad. I mean, was that the stupidest? Um, the uh, yeah, I mean, features take a really long time. I mean, you know, this one was it's about a ten year process, which is long, um, and but I mean. You know, five, six, seven years is completely normal in features. And so, I mean, you know that. And so, um, oh, no. yeah. Uh, so I find that, you know, you, you have to juggle multiple things. But you can't juggle so many things that you can't, you know, really focus on things. So generally speaking, like my, you know, I have one thing that I'm writing. Like I'm actually writing scenes for um, every day. And then I usually have something that I'm prepping. Like, uh, And so when the moments when I'm not working on my sort of main thing, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, doing my beat sheets and I'm collecting ideas and I'm writing little fragments and I'm doing whatever research I need to do so that when I I finished my sort of like front burner thing I can move to the back burner thing and, and bring that up and start and just start writing right away because it's all prepped and ready to go and then I usually have a third thing that I'm kind of noodling around with in a very sort of loose way and deciding whether it's what I want to actually write or not next. And so I kind of have, so three is usually pretty good. Once it starts to get up to four or five, which can happen, because it, sometimes like, you'll, get a, you'll get a call and be like, you know that thing you wrote three years ago? We're making it. And you're like, what? And it's like, I mean, that happened to me on a project I did called The, the Samaritan a couple years ago where I, I hadn't looked at the script in like six years. And it is, it felt like, it's like, okay, you're going to, remember your ex-girlfriend? You guys are getting married. Uh, and suddenly you're like, what was I thinking when I wrote this? It was so long ago. I feel like a completely different person. But at the same time, hopefully you've improved as a writer so you can sort of solve the problems that you, that you couldn't solve back then. You go out with fresh eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you work both in the States and in Canada. What's, where, is, where, is your, 
where are you work tending to focus your attention more these days? I mean, I mean, right now, most of my work is in the U.S., um, so I'm, I'm primarily working out of L.A. Uh, and are you down there, or do you have a place down there? Do you, or do I go, I go, um, no, I just go down there for meetings. I mean, I live in Toronto. I live in Canada. I just, I find that um, if you go down for like a, I go down like, like a week every two months, you yeah. know, and, and just cram all the, I mean, the, the downside is sometimes you do have to get on the phone or Skype and it would be better to be in the room with somebody. The plus side is you're not wasting, you don't waste a lot of time. Like, it's like, you know, Wednesday and you're gonna spend the day writing and your agent says, oh, well you have, you know, can you go to Burbank? And then like all of a sudden six hours is gone. Sure. You know, when I'm in LA, it's like wall to wall meetings for a week and like I'm, I, I do like six or seven meetings a day and I do breakfast meetings and I do dinner meetings and I do after dinner drinks and you fill it all up and then I come back here and I write. And I'm generally uninterrupted for the next, you know, six, seven, eight weeks until I'm finished what I'm writing. And That's I go back down again. And anything in Canada? Are you working on stuff in Canada? Um, I I'm not at the moment, but I have a project that I might that I'm, I'm, I'm I might take on. That's also that's Canadian. I, I'm happy to work on Canadian stuff. It's it's usually more like what is the idea? Who am I working with? And what's the best place? What's the best way to make it? I mean, the advantage here is you don't have as much money, and distribution is a bitch. But you have a a, a massively uh, larger amount of creative control. Sure, and that. Um, uh, you know, when you don't have the resources to execute your vision, that can be the creative control. Can be, it's like, okay, great, I have creative control, but I don't have enough money. But when you've worked in the U.S. system, which has which has a lot of money, and you can have a great scale, but there's a lot more politics, and it, it, it can be a lot more of a tempestuous process. Uh, I, I found like I've come to the other side where I'm like, I really appreciate. Like, we got to make this movie the way we wanted to make it, and that's a very that can be a very rare thing down there. Yeah, no, that's the great thing about doing stuff in Canada is that once a train pulls out of the station, it's really too late for everybody else. Yeah. Um, should we so, uh, open up to some questions? Sure. You have to use the microphone. I think, yeah, I think a mic's coming. For podcast purposes, not because we were, we're afraid. Let's take this moment to thank the people listening to this at home. Maybe you're on the toilet. Let's thank Maybe the, you're walking your dog. The Writers Guild of Canada. We haven't mentioned that. Oh, yes. We're here because of the Writers Guild of Canada. Oh, and now the mic is there. Hello. Hi there. So, uh, great script and a great movie. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I did uh, read an earlier version oh, yeah, okay. of, of the script, and that version, the ending, was way more uh, ambiguous. There right. was no wedding or anything <clears throat> like that. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> if you're at home and you haven't watched this movie, just you can probably torrent it. Just go torrent it right yeah. now <laughs> and send my agent $20. Oh, so actually, to tell you, I didn't. Uh, this is really a going on a podcast. Apparently. Oh, okay. Sorry about you that. You sound incredulous about <laughs> that. I mean, what is this podcast <laughs> technology? <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I, you're on the podcast. When I when I read that, I'm, yeah. I'm, when I read that ambiguous ending, I thought, well, <clears throat> there's no way that's going to stay. You know, he, <laughs> he, he is going to have to change that, and, right. and of course he did. So can you can you take us through that process? Sure. Of, you know, I mean the uh, so for those of, so uh, for listeners at home, spoiler alert. Uh, actually, stop this right now. Again, go watch the movie and come back. Okay, start again. Um, yeah, so the movie actually... And so we shot the movie with that original ending. So the movie, uh, as we premiered at TIFF, actually ended when they kissed with the sandwiches at the end. Um, and then we, add, we actually came back like a year later and shot that uh, epilogue. And it kind of came out of a couple different... I mean, I, I should say... While we were shooting the movie, this was a big conversation that Mike and I had. Everybody really liked the sort of... Um, I mean, I don't even think of it, honestly, as that ambiguous an ending. Like, I mean, but we don't spell it. We, you know, we don't kind of, like, take you through. And we sort of denied a little bit of that emotional catharsis of, like, what happens, you know? Um, 
and I did like the simplicity of it ending on a, on a kiss. Um, kiss in a sandwich. Uh, but we talked a lot while we were shooting the movie. Is that enough? Do we want more? Is that going to be satisfying? Is that going to give the audience the feeling we want when they're leaving the theater? And actually, I, I wrote uh, an epilogue while we were shooting. Uh, and we were going to shoot it, but we just, you know, when you're shooting a movie, and, you know, we had a good budget for this movie, but there's always, you, you never have enough time or resources, even if you have a good budget. And it was always like, well, what are we not going to shoot that we think we need in order to shoot this thing that we might not need. And so it just kept getting pushed down the schedule and we never shot it. And even in post, that conversation kept coming up and we looked at some, we actually ended up like looking at some scenes from other places in the movie, like could that work as an epilogue? In the end, we decided, you know, we're gonna stick with the ending that, you know, the, as scripted, because it, it just, you know, it was built very well and that we, I really love, we all really loved that scene. Um, we, and, but, you know, then we premiered the movie, and you're watching, you know, we watched it, you know, watching it with crowds. We started testing the movie because we sold it to a U.S. distributor, and we were fortunate we sold it all over the world. Um, and that conversation, that kind of question kept coming up. And so that, and part of it was, you know, well, we'd spent the money to make the movie. We didn't have more money to shoot more stuff. But then when we sold it to CBS Films in the U.S., they said, well, well, if what would you do because we will pay for it? And so then we were able to, we're like, okay, well, if you're going to pay for it, um, then, then this kind of, we, you know, we crafted this ending. And for me, you know, we talked about a lot of different stuff, and it is more challenging, because you write the movie. I mean, the movie that we shot, although obviously there was a lot of people along the way, like, you know, the, the continuity from the very beginning when it was conceived of as a low-budget Canadian film to when it was going to be a studio movie to when it was reconceived as, like, a reasonably budgeted international co-production, the continuity for that was me. Like, there was never another writer. I was, I, you know, wrote every draft of the script, and... I was, you know, I was always the sort of caretaker of the integrity of the movie, and I didn't want to give that up at the very end. Um, and so, you know, there was this process, but then suddenly you're having this conversation with like literally 40 people around a boardroom table in Santa Monica, and it's a different kind of creative conversation. Uh, but you know, Mike and I were, you know, again, we were a team through the whole thing, and we had the support of the actors as well, and so we were able to do the version that we wanted to do. And for me, what it came down to was. Um, when I originally conceived of the movie, it opened in the party and it ended at the party. And it started in front of the fridge and it ended in front of the fridge, you know? And I love that symmetry. But in, in actually in post, that scene of him in the very beginning when he's on the roof, that was a little bit later. And so that got moved. We, for various reasons, we put that the, off the top. And it always kind of bugged me that it, the symmetry was gone. That it, and so then I, I kind of came up with this image in my mind that it starts with the guy alone on a roof and it ends with the two of them together on a roof, kind of like a little bride and groom on the top of a cake. Um, and the symmetry of that imagery that we could almost tell the whole story of the movie in two shots, a guy alone, a man and a woman together. Um, I, I, that kind of resonated with me. And once I got that image, I was like, I can, now I know what to write. Great, thank you. Any other questions? Way back there. This is dead air for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, Alan, how you doing? Good, good, lovely film. Thank um, you. Location. Was that a big deal for Fox Searchlight? Was it always Toronto? Ah, um, uh, no. Uh, when we were going to do it in the U.S., they wanted to change it. They wanted to make it in the U.S., and so uh, I rewrote it for Chicago. Uh, Chicago and Buenos Aires, actually. Um, 
and then when we got a chance to kind of to bring it back here, I was really happy that we got to I got to rewrite it for Toronto. Honestly, the main the biggest thing for me more than anything was I just wanted it. I always wanted it to take place wherever we were shooting it. I didn't mind rewriting it. It wasn't like I felt like this was the kind of story that could happen anywhere, but that it should have the, the it should have the texture of the real place. We should be able to go out and walk the streets and not have to hide where we are and just embrace wherever we 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 are actually. And so that was really important to me when the opportunity came back to shoot, actually shoot it here, I was really thrilled. And it was like, you know, I mean, I had, I didn't, I don't really know Chicago, so I had actually basically, but the funny thing was, I, I had just written it for Toronto anyways. I just made a couple changes and said like, like put some Chicago landmarks in it. Like even the names of the places, were, it was still the Purple Pearl, the knitting shop, it was just like, I guess there's a Purple Pearl in Chicago now. Um, so it wasn't really hard to make the change. And I mean, and part of that, for moving from Toronto to Chicago was that idea. It's just it's a similar lakefront city. But I was really, really happy that we got to shoot it for Toronto. I mean, it's where I live. It's where I wrote the movie. We shot the mo most of the movies shot on the east side where I live. In fact, I would say about sixty percent of the movie was shot within walking distance of my house, which was great. Is that in your contract? Yeah. Well, I actually sat down with the um, with the locations manager, and I was like, I think this movie should take place entirely on the east side. Um, but our production office is on the east side, and it's just a you know Mike who lives in Montreal. You know, we spent a lot of time on the east side, and he just really fell in love with that side of the city, um, the, the the architecture and the feeling of it, and just and it's not as shot out as the west side of the city, and so we we, we really like that, and we also tried to, as much as possible to maintain what um, I call like geographical integrity, where like. For the most part, there's a few oversights, but for the most part, like everything tracks. Like you could map out the movie, and it all works. Like when they walk somewhere, like they could walk there from where they are, and like when they meet for coffee at the Rooster on Broadview, it's actually halfway between their houses, and like that's like an actual like it would work. And I like that about it, even if nobody notices it. it I, mean, I like it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but I feel like movies. No, I feel like I, it should I, have I, that like texture. You know, I mean. In, in like you know, it, it's funny when you go to like New York or L.A. or London, and you feel like you recognize the place because you've even if you've never been there before because you've seen so many movies. And I I, I, I feel like Toronto is a vibrant uh, international city, and I you know I wanted that I wanted to kind of capture that in this movie as well. People fall in love in Toronto as well. Yeah, it was, apparently it was great. It was a great uh, a great postcard to Toronto. We should take this dead air to, again, thank the WGC for sponsoring this event and the TIFF Bell Lightbox for letting us be here. Hi. I um, Hi. was really moved by the sandwich part at the end, and I was curious if that came from the play that was adapted or if that was part of your writing. As a rule of thumb, anything you like, I came up with. <laughs> um, the, the sandwich, uh, the, the Fool's Gold sandwich is in the play, although I use it differently. In uh, I, I you know it's it's in the play and they have a way they use it and I I kind of riffed off of that and so the version that you see isn't isn't how the play ends but um, but it it was sort of you know I was inspired by what they did and kind of came up with my take on it that felt more thematically right for the movie version of it I mean I think you can see the play and it'll be a sort of like a, a tangential experience um, that don't necessarily overlap but you you know you'll get other aspects of the characters and their personalities but I loved the idea but uh, you know I love that idea of the of the sandwich that was introduced in the play, and just that sense of using this weird, gross, deeply unhealthy, but kind of amazingly delicious sandwich as like a love letter between these two characters, like the most unexpected love letter that you could imagine. And the idea that something this weird and gross could come to symbolize all the sort of like intimate uh, emotions that have been building up between them over the course of the movie. I feel like if we could 
do that, then we'd actually accomplish something kind of unexpected and, and, and really beautiful. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that it resonated with you. I can get you the recipe if you want. How are the playwrights with, uh, we'll get to you in one second. How, give, you can give him the mic, he can comment as well. Uh, how are the playwrights with, uh, with, with the, uh, have, you, have you talked to them? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, they came to set, they have cameos in the movie. When he's, I noticed uh, your cameo in the movie as you, well. Yes. How did you engineer that one? It was the worst day of my life, okay? That was, <laughs> oh, it, it, here we go. It, you know, somebody says to you, you know what would be really funny is if you play the doctor that, that, ruins, yes. that ruins Daniel's life. I'm, I play the gross anatomy professor. And it seems like a great, you're like, okay, sure, that would be funny. And then you're like, and they're like, you know, and we got Sarah Gaydon to play the girlfriend, and, or, you know, to play his ex-girlfriend. And she's like this amazing actress and she does such a fabulous job. But because of scheduling, uh, she had, we had to do that scene first. And I never met her before, so it's like, hi, I wrote the movie. Also, I'll be nuzzling with you in a decommissioned biohazard laboratory of a possibly haunted hospital. And, is, and, 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 and you know, the producer's like, no, it's good because, you know, she's kind of like a, an emerging name and she's a really good actress and it'll be less weird if it's like a member of the team <laughs> doing that. Totally wrong. Way more weird. <laughs> Would have been way better just to hire a professional actor to like, you know, like nuzzle her hair in you a closet. Sold it. You sold it really well. Did I? Okay, because yeah, it was no, you didn't record, you didn't super record. awkward. Yeah, anyway, she was very professional about it. She also smells like strawberries. <laughs> uh, we had a question over here. Um, hey, uh, so I actually had a question about your relationship with um, the playwright, like yeah. specifically, um, sure. or playwrights. T.J. Daw and Mike Arnold. Yeah, yeah. Was it as simple as like they were like, okay, like here's my play, just do whatever you want, or were they involved at all into the way you shaped? Um, um, I, I will say they, they weren't that involved. Uh, I think for them it was like, oh, like you know, they wrote a it's like a fringe festival play, and I think that they didn't necessarily, uh, you know, I think they were like excited that somebody wanted to make a movie of it, but I don't think that they had high hopes that it was actually going to happen. And keeping in mind, this was like a really long process. I think I'm sure at some point they're like, okay, well that's never going to happen, but somebody keeps sending me option checks. That's great. Um, they weren't that involved, and in the, they weren't that involved in the development process. It, I think you know it, it, it was more of a like you know we're not. Movie makers, you guys are movie makers. Like you know, you know, we're excited and and you know with what you come up with. Um, I we all, I was kept in touch with them and let them know what was going on and and uh, you know to make sure that they were kind of in the loop. Although you know there was like long stretches where it's like nothing is happening. Um, and yeah, there's lots of different you know there's lots of different places where uh, when you're in development for that long, like a project can really go off the rails if you're not really careful. And so there was a lot of like finessing and the a political side dimension to all this stuff. Um, it's not just writerly craft. Um, but no, they're really like you know. They were really thrilled with the movie, was you know from, from what they said, and they came to, they came and visited us on set, and they did cameos, and they were at the premiere in Toronto, and uh, they've been super supportive of it, and, and hopefully um, it brings more attention to their work because they're both super talented guys, and um, you know I think also for them um, it, it draws you know draws attention to the work, and you know I, I think it'd be great if somebody wants to remount the play and people can see uh, that version of the story. I mean the I, the, the you know that movie kind of like definitely kind of like went off in its own direction as it had to, um, to become a piece of cinema. But I think it still honors and respects uh, the source material while being something distinct. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm just, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, I'm curious about the animated sequences. Sure. Uh, at which point did they enter the story? In the play, she doesn't really have a job per se, and so I you know, wanted to give her a job. Um, and, you know, I like the idea of giving her something kind of a creative 
job, but not being like a painter, and she's like splattered with paint all the time. I wanted it to be like a job where she was creative, but it was like it was a career, there was an office, there was politics, there was like, you know, she was contending with like her ambition versus her desire to kind of maintain the stability and comfort of her, of her current life. Um, and so the idea of being an animator really appealed to me. Uh, just on that pragmatic level. And then there was another level, which is that her story is much more internal. You know, Wallace has people he can talk about it with, but she doesn't, Chantry doesn't have people she can kind of really talk about what she's going through. And she's in denial for a lot, long stretches of the movie. And so, and I tried writing scenes where she like talked to her sister about it, her friends, and they never really struck me as being authentic to her character. And the idea of the animation kind of came to me because it was a way to sort of um, manifest in a sort of whimsical, playful uh, visual way, what she was going through internally. And so it was both a pragmatic but also kind of a creative solution to a problem I had, which was how do you get into her head? Um, now, when you act, we actually shot the movie, Zoe is like an incredibly expressive actress. So much goes on in her eyes. Actually, we use less of the animation than we thought we were going to need because sometimes it felt redundant because she does so much with her eyes. Uh, but that was where the impetus came from. And then the specific iteration of it, um, Mike had seen these really amazing uh, light mapping uh, animated experiments in Paris and sort of fell in love with the idea of actually like physically projecting her world, you know, like her internal world like, onto the city. Um, and we kind of took that idea and ran with it as well. And also, you know, you want to see that she's good at her job. Like, I think those animations are cool and they tell you something about her and that's also important. Yeah, I have this like huge pet peeve when you like, you know, like there's those movies where like someone's like an artist and then like, then they're like, and this is my picture and then somebody looks at it they're like, wow, and like you never see it. Or it's crappy, and you're like, hmm, they're not that good at this. Um, I mean, maybe you feel that about this movie, but I love the animation. And I sort of felt like it said something about, about her as, a, as an artist and as a person. Yeah. Well, we, we, we shot that stuff live. Like, so a lot of, all, most of that animation was actually shot during production, like live, projected onto the city. So we had to have the animation ready. So we worked with this great artist, Evan B. Harris, who does really amazing work. Actually, the story is our production designer, uh, Ethan Tobman, was, um, uh, was staying at a hotel in Portland. And in his hotel room was a piece of art by Evan Harris. And he just really loved it and then like when we were talking in pre-production about like what artist to use and and what it should look like he's like you know I saw I, I saw this artist in Portland who I think would be perfect and he got us in touch with him and and Evan was able to do it and and he was able to work really quickly and and we were able to get kind of um uh, the versions that we were able to shoot. Uh, obviously, we were able to embellish it later, but most of the stuff that's shot in the city is shot practical with a projector actually on the buildings. Um, so it was happening consistent. And yeah, obviously, he worked off of images of Zoe. It'd be funny if we actually cast the actors to match the animation, but we didn't, we didn't do that. Hi. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you about the title, and specifically um, because it was the movie was released in Canada and the U.S., under mm -hmm. different titles, how did that come about and um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so the movie was just, I mean, so first of all, the play is called Toothpaste and Cigars. Uh, the movie was called The F Word. That's what we premiered at TIFF as. Um, basically, you can't call a movie The F Word in the United States, okay? Like, you just, I mean, it was really, it was like, you just can't do that. And we thought that that was crazy, but um, apparently American civilization might collapse, and they're an important trade partner of Canada. We don't want them to collapse. Um, and so we had to come up with another title. And it's definitely a challenge because it goes from, again, like, 
you know, you come up with a title in isolation, uh, just whatever seems right to you, and then all of a sudden you're trying to come up with a title with like, again, literally 40 people around a conference room. It's not the best way to do it. And marketing gets involved and all that stuff. I mean, I think the title What If is a lot softer, obviously. Um, I think it uh, captures a certain kind of like a whimsical kind of romantic yearning, which was also how they wanted to market the movie in the US, whereas in Canada, they went for a little more of like a cheekier, kind of edgier, more frank, uh, feeling. Um, in Mexico, it's called Solo Amigos. In Croatia, it's called So Alto. Uh, in different countries, they have different titles, and so that's just kind of part of the thing. It is a little odd that in Canada and the U U.S. it's different, but I'm just happy that Canadian audiences, if that, you know, E1 felt Canadian audiences could handle <laughs> the F word. This is dead air again for the podcast. We're doing a terrible job. Hi. Uh, great job with the film. Thank uh, you. I have a general writing question. Sure. Uh, you mentioned when you're talking about like sort of your writing schedule um, that you'll sort of you'll push through and like do bad writing as opposed to waiting for something good to come. Yeah. What happens if you have like prolonged periods of bad writing where you might <laughs> lose, you know, or like you know where you lose interest? Maybe not bad writing, but maybe right. something gets uninspired and. Uh, That's called a first draft. So do you just push through it and hope that it'll come through yeah. with maybe editing and stuff like that? Yeah, rewriting, man. I mean, it, you're going to fix it all in rewriting anyways. It's so much easier to rewrite something that exists than it is to just stare at a blank page or a blank screen. I mean, because when you have something that exists, you, you, then you can be like, okay, I need to come up with a better line of dialogue than this terrible line of dialogue that I wrote. But that's different than I have to come up with a line of dialogue, you know? This scene is dramatically inert. What can I do to change the dynamics of this scene to give it more conflict and propulsion and, 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 and you know, whatever, dynamism? But then you're actually, now you're talking about solving a problem that exists as opposed to concocting something from thin air. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't worry about it, you know? I just, I'll write like a bland version of it. Sometimes I'll just, I'll just, just to get something down, I'll write a totally unsubtle, lame, <laughs> Like dry version of it, just to get something down, um, and then I, and I rewrite it later because it's gonna you're gonna rewrite it a million times anyways. Um, so yeah, that's what I, that's what I do. And sometimes and I just have little tricks that I do with myself if something's not working. You know, like I let's say I have a scene where like I know I have to get a piece of information. I want to get a piece of information out. I'm building to get to this piece of information. Sometimes I'll be like, what if that's the first thing someone says? What if they just say the thing right away? I try that. Or it's like I have the scene and it's between two characters and it's just not working. I'm like, what if the character, one of the characters, tries to have this conversation with somebody else? What happens then? I just did that actually in a scene. This scene, it wasn't working. It was really flat. It was really expositional. And I was like, what if instead he has this character with another, has the same conversation with somebody else who has completely different reactions than the person that I had them in the scene with? And that the scene like was way better. All of a sudden, it had some real life to it. Also because the other person he was talking to was like didn't want to hear what he had to say, was actually actively annoyed. But then that gave like some conflict. And another thing I try, and this is a thing for writing, and it's also super, super helpful for actors when you actually get on set, is I give everybody a secret. What's your secret? Actors love secrets. This is something uh, actually Zoe, um, Zoe Kazan said to me, so I'm just not name dropping, I'm gonna just credit her, which is that actors love secrets. And I, uh, I knew that intuitively and um, in the writing process and I really try to bring that to bear in my work as well. And, and, and just something like that, even if nobody ever knows what that secret is, it doesn't have to be a secret that you're gonna reveal in a big moment. It's just for the, for the character and for the actor, all of a sudden it gives everything subtext. And so th those are things that I, you know, th those are like little tricks, but just like, I just mix it up. If it's not working, I try something else. I turn it around, I flip it, I, I flip it and reverse it. 
basically everything you need to know about writing you can get from Missy Elliott. What was uh, some of the secrets you told the actors for this movie? Oh, well, I mean, let's see, that's a good question. Um, you know, sometimes it's, um, it's some, you know, like, you know, a character has uh, something that they want to tell somebody. You know, like, for example, the scene at the beach when they're, um, when they're, when they're talking about, you know, the Cool Whip stuff. Well, uh, Alan and Nicole know that they're going to set up Wallace and Chantry. You know, like, they have, they're cooking up this plan, but they don't know it. Right, and so um, you know when she, uh, in fact, like Mackenzie does it very abruptly when she's like, "Let's go swimming," you know, and it's like very like, and then Alan's like, uh, "Okay," like you know, and, but you know, and that idea of like you know, and then what is you know at that point in the in the movie also like Wallace has decided you know he he doesn't know in that scene um, whether Shantry and her sister talked about what happened, so he doesn't know. And that's, that's in there as well. And she does know. She knows that he rejected her, his sister, and she can't help but wonder what that's about. And so all of that stuff, you know, it's, you know the scene is just them riffing on Cool Whip. Um, but I had all that stuff in my head when I was writing the scene. And so um, whether or not uh, it means anything to the audience, they're laughing at the semen jokes, as they should. Uh, but for me and for the actors, we, we know there's something going on under the hood that's going to play out as the scene progresses. Sure. Okay. Uh, congratulations. Great movie. Um, I noticed that a lot of the songs used in it were Patrick Watson. Yeah. Uh, and I was wondering how that partnership came about. And also, when you're writing, do you ever write with certain songs in mind for certain parts, if only just to infuse those scenes with the, the, those yeah. emotions? No, I absolutely do. I usually, when I'm writing a project, I make a playlist and I listen to those songs over and over again. In fact, usually, um, I often kind of think of a movie like an album, you know, and, um, you know, like, uh, like, you know, and, and like an album's going to have like its hit songs and your movie's going to have like their hit, they're like, you know, sort of like the, the hit sequences, you know, like, like the dinner party sequence or like the sequence in like the clothing, the, the change room. I mean, like, you know, some, some of these are like your sequences which, which bring everything together. Those are kind of like your, your you know, your, your singles. But you want, the, you know, obviously you want the whole movie to, to, to work that way. But I think about sort of the different sequences of the movies like songs. And I often like have a song that I listen to over and over and over again um, that the rhythms of the song and the tone of the song infuse themselves, at least for me, in the sequence, even if nobody, ever, nobody else ever knows it. Um, and, you know, often, like, I can hear that song on the radio, like, years later, and it brings that whole sequence back, back to me. But, I, do, but I, I, I like to do that. And you have to listen to the song so many, so many times that the words mean nothing to you. It's not really about the lyrics. It's about the tone. Uh, what's actually kind of interesting is uh, when I was writing the very first draft of the script, I listened to A.C. Newman's album, The Slow Wonder, like, a lot, like, over and over again. And then, like, years later, uh, we were in, you know, post-production, and, and Mike, you know, called me. He's like, what do you think about talking to A.C. Newman about doing the score? And I'm like, I think that's a great idea. Um, and so A.C. Newman um, from the New Pornographers did our score. And uh, so it was really kind of a full circle thing because nobody knew that that had been the case, that the actual sort of DNA of the original draft of the movie had been sort of infused with his album. So it kind of brought things uh, really full circle in that way. And the Patrick Watson stuff, you know, Mike uh, brought that. He, he really fell in love with the album. And I think for him, uh, Patrick's album, uh, Adventures in um, My Backyard, 
sort of captured the tone for him of the movie. And in fact, in our first cut of the film, for like our friends that watched it, it was like wall-to-wall Patrick Watson. It was like just all Patrick Watson, kind of like The Graduate or something with, uh, with uh, Simon and Garfunkel. We didn't end up using all of his songs, but that was like our, our, some of the initial pacing um, w- w- was set to his, his music. And so uh, I kind of think of it almost like, um, like AC and Patrick's, it's like a harmony or like a duet between the two of them, just like it's sort of a duet between Wallace and Chantry. We have time for, we've been given the warning, we have time for one more question. Hi there. Um, so you talked, or you talked before about... I never talk briefly about anything, <laughs> but thank you. Um, I appreciate that. You mentioned jumping into a scene and worrying about the rewrites later on. Yeah. Um, so how detailed is your outlining? Do you do a lot, or do you do a little and kind of jump in and figure it out later, or...? Um, I don't, I mean, I, I outline insofar as, like, I know the basics of what I want to happen um, or what's, what needs to happen. Like, I, I outline in terms of, like, what actually has to happen uh, in the various pieces of the movie. I don't usually start writing until I feel like I have a great ending, until I feel whether or not this is going to bear out or not, until I feel like the ending of the movie is the best part of the movie. I don't like to even start writing. And then usually what I do is I write act one and then I write act three. And then once I have my ending, that's sort of like a comfort, and I feel like, okay, now I have an anchor, and then I go back and write Act 2, and then Act 2 is just everything I need to get from the end of Act 1 to my climax, essentially. Um, And I find that a super... And of course, you go back and rewrite and rewrite all the time, but I find doing that, having my beginning and my ending, and then having... Because it's so easy to get lost in Act 2, and a feature especially, that's so easy to start meandering and go on all these tangents, and and just, you know, it feels like a a road trip that's never going to end. And so... um, I, I I found that method really works works well for me. But outlining also, you know, the, what I, I mean, I you know, of course, like I like to like anybody, I like to procrastinate and put my little cards on the wall, and like sometimes they are different color cards, and like I you know have like my markers on them, and there's little you know I develop like symbols. Um, and then what I do is like every time I write a scene, I like like to tear off up the card. And so as the movie, as I keep writing through the movie, like I have less and less cards on the wall. And I find after a couple, and what I what I do is I write all the scenes that I'm most excited about, I write those first. I just write those right away. And because those are usually the, the scenes that are like, that, I'm, that are the reason I want to write the movie. And usually they're the kind of hit single scenes that kind of capture everything about the characters and the theme and the tone and everything all in that, in, in a sequence. And then I usually write the next run of scenes that I'm excited about and then the next run. And then at that point, usually there's about like a third of the cards are still left on the board. And those are all the scenes I don't want to write. And usually it's because I don't need them. You know, usually it's because I don't need those scenes or they're just connective tissue or they're just exposition or they're just getting me from one place to another. And I find half the time I'll look at a card and I'll be like, this is one line of dialogue that I've structured as a three-page scene and I just need to put a line of dialogue somewhere. Or there's just something dramatically not working about the scene, you know? Like it's just something dramatically, the conflict's not there. It's the, the where I am in the character's arc just isn't, it's not clear. And so I find like my own desire not to write them is, is telling me that there's something wrong with them. And if I don't want to write them, no one's going to want to read them, and definitely no one's going to want to shoot them. Wow. Great. <laughs> that was excellent. You made my job very easy. Easy. You guys were a great audience. I want to say on behalf of the Writers Guild of Canada, thank you for coming out to the inaugural feature writers talking about feature films. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming and checking out the movie. And for not pirating it.
Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you, and you can email us at writerstalkingtv at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please log on to iTunes and share your positive feedback, which helps us to increase the profile of the podcast. Writers Talking Feature Film is sponsored by the Writers Guild of Canada, and this edition was held at the TIFF Bell Lightbox in Toronto. The show's technical producer is Philip Vukovic, and I'm Michael McGowan. Thanks for listening.